Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Allingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum, a podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Welcome to today's episode. Today, we are covering the topic of postdoc. As we get closer to the job market season, we thought it would be good to do an episode on postdoc as it could be an attractive opportunity in this brave new world. Yeah, and really one of the things that we wanted to talk about today is what's actually involved in a postdoc, what are some responsibilities or some rewards uh, related to choosing a postdoc. Uh, Also, what are some challenges and basic recommendations from someone who's done it? But before we introduce her, let me say hi to Alex. Alex, how are you doing? Doing really well. How about you, Sebastian? I am doing well. Excited that we just launched this online and hopefully people find it helpful. Yeah, hopefully we get tens of followers. I'm expecting 10 listeners, but yes. (laughs) Um, Great. Our guest today is Dr. Craig Cruz Bueno. She's a postdoctoral research associate at the Edinburgh Institute at Brown University. She holds an economics PhD from Georgia State, and her research is in applied microeconomics with a focus on labor economics and education economics. She addresses topics such as school choice, teacher demand, and student non-cognitive skills. She's also a participant of the AA Summer Training Program, shout out to Santa Barbara, um, <laughs> and is a fantastic mother, wife, and represented the DR. Carrie Cruz, how are you today? Everyone, I'm doing good. I'm doing good, given pandemic crazy COVID-19 but thank you both for having me here well we're very excited to have you um Carrie Cruz why don't you tell us something super fun about yourself I think something super fun about myself is I'm an explorer I love to travel and so like a funny thing about that if you ask my family is that I'm super into like maximizing our time at our destinations Mm. so I plan out our whole trip like to the hour and I nice. color code, and if it's like multiple families, like my extended family, like my brothers and sisters, and my two brothers, if they come in, like I color code by like the time, like my brother gets green, and I have when he gets white eyes, and when my brother, my other brother's blue, and so it's 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 elaborate, and like I maximize like destinations and like things off the beam path that are close to each other and like cool restaurants. Wow. It's, it's a whole, <laughs> I could be a travel agent in my own. Oh, that's super interesting. Have you heard of atlasobscura.com? Uh, it's a pretty cool website you might be interested in. It's where you can go and uh, type in your location and find off the beaten path uh, things of interest. Uh, you know, not stuff that you would find on TripAdvisor, but uh, really unique sort of things uh, for an area. I haven't, but now I'm adding, I'm writing it down. <laughs> what I took from this is that I want to go on a trip with Curry Cruz because that sounds fantastic if somebody can do that for me. Where's your first post-COVID-19 trip going to be, Carrie? Well, we had a trip to Spain and south of France planned um, for March and, no, sorry, end of April. Mm-hmm. And so we still have our vouchers, so we're okay. going to... It's already planned out. It just needs to change states when things are safe. So I think that will be the first big one. 
but we're hoping to do like a small local one to yeah. Maine, which is still safe to drive up and be like super distant from everyone. That sounds great. So before we dive into the postdoc talk, let's hear about your research. What would you like to share about your research today, Carrie Cruz? So for my research, I have two papers that I'm really focused on right now getting out to pre-reviewed journals. The first one is looking at differential pay for math and science teachers. And so a little bit about that one was that in Georgia in 2009, 2010, there was a law that passed that math and science teachers was one from zero to five years of experience would get extra pay. And this was done to help recruit and retain teachers. And what we find, we got new data, so we're updating the paper currently, but what we found so far is that actually paying these math and science teachers does lead to retaining them for. Mm. um, So we've started to find some really good positive outcomes from this intervention. So that's really exciting. It's really and you can you, you look at retention and also, and just that, or you also can look at quote unquote quality. I don't know how you measure quality in education for teachers. So, so we have, yeah, so that's a good question. We always get, yeah, you want to retain quality teachers. So that's not any teacher. Um, so for that, we, ha- we don't really address it completely in the paper to the way we would like to. Um, we don't have student-teacher connection to actually measure if student outcomes mm. are increasing for that paper. Um, so that would be really, really an important step to make sure that we're retaining good math and science teachers on top of just retaining. So unfortunately, we can't measure that in this paper, but I, it's obviously a really good and important thing to do. I have a question about the, how the payment works. So my brother-in-law is a math teacher, and he so he's in New York City. And he received some type of bonus payment. I'm not sure if it was due to his like being zero to five years out, but it was like a grant. It wasn't like, a, it was like something he had to reapply for. Is that a common way of doing this? Or is this just like a straight salary bonus? And cause I'm curious, like that extra hassle cost of like having to redo this grant every year and things um, might have some negative effects versus then if it's just like, nope, you get paid some extra amount sort of guarantee. So I think that's the interesting thing about the U.S. is that every state implements their own way and it can have a very similar looking policy on paper. It can be implemented hundreds of different ways. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes even within a state, they have more than one program going on to supplement salary. So in the case of Georgia, where, where we're studying, it was passed by legislation and there is always this threat with legislation if it's going to get reapproved when they come back up. So there is always this uncertainty that comes with politics and budgets. Um, but in the case of Georgia, what we found right now is that you don't have to apply if you fulfill the certain requirements. So if you're certified teaching a math and science class and have less than six years of experience, you will get the payment because they have that all on record. Great. And what up? you said you had two papers. What is the second one about? Yeah, so my second paper is looking at full-time virtual schools and their impact on students, specifically student test scores and graduation. And They're this is all, before COVID, just to be this is, clear. Yeah, this yeah. has been around for the past 10 years. So this is students are attending K through 12, all their classes online on these public charter schools. Gotcha. And what do you find? Yeah, so in a nutshell, I find that students who attend these uh, full-time virtual schools actually do worse than what we would expect them to do. So to try to get around the selection issue, self-selection issue that families have when they choose to enter these schools, 
I do individual fix events with one of my methods. And so looking mm-hmm. at the switchers of students who are both non-virtual schools and these full-time virtual schools, comparing them against themselves, I find that they do about 0.1 to 0.4 standard deviations worse when they're attending the virtual school. Yeah. And so is your is your takeaway from that paper that the virtual experience is not as good, but there's things that we can do to improve it? Or is your takeaway that well, now that everyone is going to virtual school, you know, this we don't we're not gonna see these differences and that's the okay. I think the biggest takeaway is that for most students, I mean, this doesn't mean all students, but for the average student who's in these full-time virtual schools, they're not doing as well as we want to. We're not getting the returns we want from education. Okay. And so we need to be cautious about which students we're actually going to benefit from an actual virtual school. Mm-hmm. And given that the health crisis, the pandemic that we're facing, of course, I, I want to prioritize health and the right. health of teachers and faculty and everyone who's involved in the school system. But I think then we need, knowing that there's negative impacts, we need to reinforce different strategies that can help students, especially those who are marginalized, like right. Black students, Indigenous, Latino, mm-hmm. students with special needs, and really focus on these populations to make sure they don't fall further behind. Okay, so let's dive into talking about postdoctorals. Um, I'm also going to refer to them as postdocs because I feel like that's the cool way of saying it. Um, but let's, let's start with uh, your current position and maybe walk us through, you know, um, what exactly is your current position and what are your responsibilities and structures, and then we can go from there. Yeah, so I'm a postdoc. Um, at Annenberg Institute at Brown University in Providence. The institute in general focuses on education research to help equalize and improve educational opportunities. Um, For the state of Rhode Island or is this kind of like in general? It's both. Okay. I think right now it's relatively young institute under Mm -hmm. the leadership of Susanna Loeb. So we are really focused in on local partnerships as well as national partnerships. Were you aware when you uh, applied for the job and when you were interviewing of all these responsibilities that your postdoc was going to entail? Or is this something that you found out sort of when you showed up? Yeah, so when I applied, um, the general application was someone who does education research, education policy research. Gotcha. And what's the like structure or your responsibilities or at least what they told you or at least what you're doing now? Maybe I don't know if they're different because things have changed, but, you know. Yeah, I think every postdoc, even within the institute, has different responsibilities. And I can only imagine how different it is across all the postdocs in the U.S. Right. But for mine, I'm on the local impact team. So what that means is that we've partnered with Providence and Rhode Island Department of Education. And so we work closely with their research team and the different groups in the Rhode Island and Providence School Districts to look at teacher pipeline issues. Is the end product that they're looking for kind of like a report? It, or, and then, and if that's the case, is the idea that you guys, for you guys, is the final product also a report or, or is the idea like, okay, we're going to try to make a paper also about this as well? Yeah, so for their partnerships, I think they want reports as well as like policy briefs and short right. recommendations. So it's mm-hmm. a combination of both those things. And then for me, on top of being able to have an active role in policy and with these districts, 
it's also hopefully to arrive at a, at a paper. Gotcha. Can you tell us a little bit about how you feel like your time is split? Maybe obviously that varies a lot because in this environment, things vary a lot, but how do you, how do you feel your time is split? So ahead of time, we had talked about it being about 75% for the Institute. So for the postdoc work, so that translated to about four days um, working for the Institute and one day for myself. And that varied depending where we were along in the process. But I guess I would recommend for people, if they can negotiate it, to have right. two days of their own, if it's possible, um, because it's really hard to come back to your research right. after one week. Because, you know, like with our types of research, you have this big data set, you have all these different questions and so many moving parts and to revisit even your code again sometimes takes you half a day to to get back. That's super interesting. Yeah. So so you recommend at least trying to have a space every week to visit to visit your own research as opposed to doing this just chunks of time here and there. It, it's yeah. complicated. I I don't think I've figured out the best way yet. Um, it's it's yeah. It's hard, and I think everyone works differently. I think chunks could be nice, but it's also hard when you have pressing deadlines with your projects. Mm, yeah. So I, I think it's tricky. I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. But I think just really making time for your own research gets hard and really protecting that time mm-hmm. is important and trying to get at least two days worth for your own research, I think is pretty beneficial. That's great. Um, two, two questions that, uh, one, well, one is to clarify that you've been in the postdoc for one year, correct? Right. So, and you still have one more year to go. Right. Okay, great. Um, so at least, you know, she has already the experience of being a year there. And then you said protect your time. Is there, when you say that, do you feel like you have any like tips there? Is there, is that just like setting expectations really clear? Like, is that something that you communicate every week or like what, you know, how, how, do, how help us understand how, how can we enforce that? I think it is hard to enforce it just because you know, you're still answering to different people. You're not really in authority. So I think it is tricky. I think it needs Mm. to come with like respect and mutual respect from both leadership and the postdoc and just a mutual understanding and expectations, I guess. These are my goals. I really want to get my publications out. I want to get my papers out. How can you support me and make sure that I'm also focused on that work? So I think clear expectations um, what I found out personally is just telling leadership, like Thursdays, I am only working on my work or I love it. Mondays and Wednesdays, morning time, I'm just working on my stuff. So, um, I won't right. be able to get back to you till X day. Right. That sounds really smart. Did you have that conversation like at the onset or is that something that you developed as a strategy sort of after learn, was it like learning by doing, or was that like thoughtful from the get-go? Um, so in the beginning, it was clearly said that there should be time for my own research. So everyone knew that there should be time for my research, but it wasn't until um, work started to really overflow with our local projects that I wasn't spending almost any time on my work. And mm-hmm. so I had to sit down with, with the leadership and just be like, um, I am really invested in these projects, but I also really want to make sure I get my other right. projects out the door. Um, so they were really supportive and understanding. It was just, I think, communication is really important to making sure both sides are on the same page at all times. Yeah, and I think this gets back to that seasonality, you think, of our work, right? And, and maybe sometimes 
they need something really quickly for, for that policy work, but you also need to submit something for a deadline and maybe that's where it gets tricky. But I guess to an extent, maybe we all deal with that with any of our jobs with like teaching and, and, and other responsibilities. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, a question that um, I think is a very common question, and I have a particular answer in my head, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what are your feelings towards a one-year postdoc? And, and obviously, just to set the, the question right, the challenge being that you start on the fall by the time you already need to be applying maybe for jobs or your next opportunity. So it becomes this, this weird timing issue. Yeah, so I think one-year postdocs, they have worked for people who are able to set up their one-year postdoc and a job after the one-year postdoc, either okay. in academia or at a think tank. And so I've had a couple of friends, colleagues that have done this, and they've been really happy with their experience. Um, if it's your only option, I would say, of course, take it. <laughs> right, it's sure. better than grad school. <laughs> um, that's good to know that's actually a really good point it is better than grad school okay let's set the facts straight okay good yeah <laughs> at least for me it has been yeah. in the sense you do get paid more and do get you get you get a different kind of security in your own work yeah and we can talk more about the, the benefits but um I think it's hard if you have other options to just take a one-year postdoc and I think of course it's trade-offs you need to wait um, what you really want out of your career. But the hard part of taking a one-year postdoc, if you have other options, is that, like you said, you're back on the market in less than six months. Right. Because if you're finishing your dissertation, like that could take all the way up to the end of May or June. And then you really just have two months, three months to look different. And that's, that's almost impossible unless your postdoc is... Um, an extreme name. Yeah. And I guess like this struggle for me, cause I've had a couple of friends do this too, is like, do you think the first year, like, let's say you only, your only option is a one year postdoc. Is it because like there was some negative characteristic of you or is it just because you got some bad draws? So like maybe going on the market again, like you'll get some great draws this time and you don't need to be a different person. It's like knowing what you really need to do in those two months is really important. Is it really that you need to do a new job market paper or is it just, you need some more draws? Right. And I don't think anyone could really know that. And I think that's I think that's a good point. And I think it's really hard to tell because you don't get much feedback from the market. Like you apply to all these places, but very few places respond to you like, hey, we didn't like you because X, Y, and Z. Um, I did actually get a couple of those because I reached out and was very proactive and some people were already part of my network and I knew them. And so they would reach out to me and say, oh, Carrie, it's not because we didn't like you. It was more, um, we were looking for someone who had already taught econometrics undergrad. It's like, well, mm-hmm. I didn't teach that as a grad student. Right. That has nothing to do with my qualifications and my research and what I can do. Um, so it's, it's a lot of misinformation in the market and a lot of mismatch. So if you're like overshooting yourself as well, and so you're the third choice for all the places you got to interview, then didn't mean that there wasn't places for you to land. It just meant it didn't work out. So I think there's there's a lot of things that happen that are out of the applicant's control. It might be really good for you to have a postdoc and go to a postdoc. Like that might be some people's like first choice in the sense that they also, at least I saw them as an opportunity to like uh, transition into into maybe another job, whether that's academic or non-academic. 
but have this experience still at a university, you know, maybe working in policy, but at the same time, having some time for your research. So, um, I, you know, I could also see somebody also just looking forward for, for that opportunity for whatever reason. Also, there's geographical constraints that people may have. And so maybe a postdoc is a good opportunity there too, right? What are the things that you would uh, maybe recommend people to look into if they were, um, you know, having an option of going to a postdoc? Like what's, what, what are some things that for you, you would, you would highlight? So I think that has to do with what are the benefits of a postdoc. So I'll just to quickly say, I think you mentioned some of them already is no responsibility of teaching and service, being able to, <laughs> being able to focus on your research. Um, it should make you more competitive on the market because you've had um, time to work on your research. Um, That's a really hopefully good point. it increases your network and people now um, see you as a co-author, you have more visibility, and hopefully it also gives you more research in your pipeline, which will help you in your tenure track time if that's the path you're going on. And I think one less obvious one that I've talked to with some of my friends who are doing postdocs is that it just gives you more confidence in your research without having the stress of all the other things that come um, with a traditional tenure track job. I, I like that. I think that's a really important aspect. And I didn't think about that, but I think that makes a lot of sense that you just you just feel like you're a better economist or researcher or, or however you want to see it. That's a really good point. So in that sense of things that you should be looking in a postdoc, is it going to increase your network? Are these people going to support you in the ways that you want a postdoc to support you? Um, so I think that's, that's the biggest thing. Like, is this going to take you to the place where you want to be in the next five, 10 years? And then I, I have a sort of related question. Would you view, I mean, obviously, like, you know, going to an institution like Brown really elevates the next time you're on the market. But in the... Very st- fancy. Yeah, exactly. Very fancy. But um, <laughs> it, it, when you talk about, like, are these people going to support you and let you do things, are you looking at the specific individuals that are hiring you as the most important people because you'll be, like, working directly under them? Or are you looking at, like, the department or maybe the group that you'll be working with as, like, other opportunities to have that support? Like, I, I guess, like... it should a person who's considering a postdoc focus more on maybe the person that's hiring them than in other uh, instances of being hired? Yeah, that's a great question. I definitely think you need to focus on the mentors that you're going to have. And I think one way you can do this if you're deciding between different opportunities is actually contacting previous postdocs that have worked with this person or grad students if they have grad students and seeing what kind of their workflow is and how they promoted their students previously, what placements they had for their students or in their postdocs, and just seeing if this could be someone that's the kind of mentorship that you want to receive. I think a lot of people see mentorship differently, and if um, the person and you kind of line up in the way that they that you want them to mentor you, I think that's kind of hard to know, especially coming out of grad school. Like some people don't know how they want to be mentored, and some people don't know how to mentor. Mm, that we could do a whole episode of that too. It's <laughs> <laughs> a whole other episode. But um, so for me, going to Brown and specifically Annenberg, I was really, I've always followed Susanna Wilkes' work. And it, it was an opportunity where I couldn't give up being able to learn from her, work beside her. And then being at Brown, there's just so many different opportunities that I thought I could take advantage of. For example, there's, there's the policy lab 
which I've had conversations with and we've talked and I'm, I'm an affiliate of. And so there's loads of projects going on there that I can get involved in and know that, um, or at least think and have conversations with other people to know if they're going to be the mentors and support that you need to get back on the marketing too. Yeah, thanks. That's really thoughtful. And I particularly like the part where you talked about contacting sort of previous people that have had this position or similar positions like graduate students, because that can be a way to learn sort of mm-hmm. inside information that maybe isn't otherwise available, but that is like central to your quality <laughs> of life and literally the things you that are going to be the most important to you. Um, like it, there might not be a website to look up, right? Like, is this person like mean? Do they yell at you all the time? But you're going to want to know that. So that, that's a smart way to do that. Related to that, I think it's this next question of what, tips do you feel you have for the people who are hiring the postdocs? So this would be kind of like the, uh, not, not the job seekers, but the job providers. Um, you know, what are, what are, what are some recommendations that maybe you will tell them about, um, uh, you know, either selecting their people or, or also like what information that they should be given to the interviewees? So I think one of the most important things is that there should be clear expectations I think that's that's really helpful for both the postdocs as well as for the people hiring. So everyone's on the same page and the work that needs to be produced mm-hmm. gets done as well as both sides are really happy with the kind of work that's getting done. And I think the next thing of advice that I have people who are actually mm-hmm. putting these postdocs together is that it really should be about mentorship. And so the more that the people who are leading the postdocs can actually produce papers mm-hmm. and increase the network and platform of postdocs, I think that's their number one job to do. Just really, truly mentor through helping them write papers, getting papers out, giving them a platform, giving them the skills that they think a good researcher Mm -hmm. needs and maybe they don't have them. When you talk about like mentorship and helping them write papers, do you think it's important So I I hear this advice a lot for new job market candidates, fresh PhDs. It's very important that your job market paper, if possible, is solo authored. Do you think that's as important as a postdoc? Or like, can mentorship involve lots of co-authored work? Or do you think that then that will be discounted on the market? I'm not sure about discount and sole authorship once you've done a postdoc. I'm not sure. I think if, I think the biggest signal is actually having publications. So if you have publications, you're on path, at least in the world of economics. I guess I'm in the philosophy of do your best work, do it with as many people as you can, because there's just so many ideas that flow when you work within a group. So I think having a mix, if you can show that you can produce work by yourself as well as with a team, I think those are both important skills. Okay, great. I mean, because that makes sense to me. So as you know, a junior professor, all of my work is co-authored, right? Like I don't have a bunch of solo authored work. So it would make sense to me to sort of provide the best mentorship to sort of produce the best research, but it's sort of nice to hear that it's not like you think there's some super important thing to being like, no, you have to have a solo authored paper or something like that. Because I don't think that's the way that like research is done uh, or the modal research is done once you leave graduate school. Um, Great. So the last kind of topic uh, would be to talk about um, maybe negotiations. Is there like room for negotiations when you are entering a postdoc or is the kind of like, here's a contract, take it or leave it kind of deal? So I think the number one thing, if you want negotiation, and this is for any job, is you need other offers. And so when you have other offers, it makes it a lot easier to negotiate. Without other offers, I don't know how much room there would be 
to move the contract either way. So you can always ask nicely. <laughs> you can always do that. Um, but when you have an actual <laughs> other job offer, I do think you're able to so in my case, I had a tenure track offer and the postdoc offer. And so the tenure track had some moving costs in it, whereas the postdoc didn't. And so I was able to negotiate um, a very small amount, but it was something that, that helped. And yeah, and I think when I was deciding, I, I gave a call to Derek Hamilton, oh, professor yeah. of Sebastian and I during AA summer program. And he talked with me a lot and we like weighed the different things. And he just said, okay, Carrie, there's some risk to not taking the tenure track job, but there's risk in tenure track jobs too. Amen. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, you're just betting on yourself by taking this postdoc that you're going to be a better researcher, a better economist, oh. and just overall time for you. So it's just like really investing time. In I yourself. love that. That's great. Yeah. All right, that's a great place uh, to pause. Um, so, Kerry Cruz, every week we like to wrap up the episode with a recommendation for the week. This can be anything, a quote, a book, an episode, a movie, a website, a paper, anything interesting that you would like to recommend our listeners. I know economics says more choices is better, but I don't, <laughs> I don't always believe that, so I might be a little irrational. But I've narrowed it down to... Um, I think it's really important now, and it has been in the U.S. for a long time, about supporting Black authors. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's important to read books like How to Be an Anti-Racist, but also it's really important to read fiction by Black authors. So currently, um, me and my siblings are reading Children of Blood and Bone. So it's a pretty popular book, and I think they're going to make a movie about it soon. So it's just a great book. If you're a Harry Potter fan, if you're a... GOT fan, you're going to love this. these books. I think they're actually better <laughs> than them. And they give a really different perspective. And it's a magical world. I don't want to put the book down. And I love that you and your siblings are reading it together. That's kind of fun. Yeah, it started with pandemic. So we were, you oh, know, okay. we were just like, you know, so awful. Everything has been so hard, especially for my family. Mm-hmm. And so it was just kind of something to bring like joy back into our lives. So she hits so many different topics in the book, and it's just so great. That's very wholesome of your family. I feel like I need to I need to have something like that in my family. <laughs> a book club is a great idea for the pandemic. I mean, even if it's just listening to it on audiobook, it gives you something to talk about other than the news. It's yeah. great. <laughs> That's true. Um, Alex, do you want to go with your recommendation for the week? Sure. So uh, my recommendation for the week will be somewhat related. So I drive a lot. I live in Indianapolis. I work in Bloomington. And uh, I like audiobooks, but it turns out they're expensive. Um, so I end up using Libby quite a bit, which is L-I-B-B-Y. Oh, yes. Yeah, and it's great because it's basically, you just need a library card, which hopefully you have a library card. And then you just link your library card up to Libby and you can download audiobooks. Now, just like the library, you might have to wait, might not be available. Uh, you only have 14 days or so to listen to the book, but it's phenomenal. And you can also link Libby up to like a Kindle if you like reading uh sort of digital print. I don't know what the appropriate speak is for that. So maybe uh, this is of blood and bone or the children of blood and bone. It's probably on Libby too. That's great. <laughs> I would I will say too, um, when I went, uh, when I was traveling before this whole thing happened, 
I downloaded Libby and I downloaded audio guides of like the places that I was going. I was visiting Athens and some uh, cities in Spain. And it was just a great having like a free audio tour while I was uh, touring around. So I love that recommendation. Um, my recommendation of the week, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, so this paper came out in the Journal of Economic Perspective. How can you how you can work to increase the presence and improve the experience of Black Latinx and Native American people in the economics profession. This is by uh, Professor Bayer, Professor Hoover, and Professor Washington. Um, I thought it was a really good and also practical type of article that, that kind of addressed this question that we all been thinking about um, when it comes to just uh, changes in the profession. So I'll put the link to all of those things down below in the show notes. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I hope everyone can take something from it. Kaya Cruz, where can people learn more about you or where can they follow you? Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Kerry Cruz Bueno, just my name. And there you'll find a link to my website. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kerry Cruz. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast service and leave us a review. Thank you for joining us. Bye. Thanks so much. I feel like that was our most like wholesome episode. <laughs> <laughs>